Would you join us this morning in Daniel chapter 7? Whether you have a physical Bible or you need to open it up electronically, both work. This morning we continue a study that we've been doing verse by verse through the book of Daniel, finding ourselves in chapter 7. We want you to see it with us. For you guys who are in our overflow, those who are watching online, please accept the same invitation. We're so glad that technology allows you to be a part of this, but we invite you to really be a part of it, that you would grab a Bible physically or electronically and you would follow along. Our great desire is that God's Word would just be clear to us this morning. And so hoping that you're being able to see it, follow along with us. We long for God to work into this and certainly work in each of our lives. Well, that is an aim. Let's take a moment and ask Him for that. Let's ask that God would open up you and your heart and mind to the truth. I'm going to lead in prayer, but I'm hoping you would pray as well, that it would be a space where we ask God to help us to understand what He has for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank You right now, and just for this moment, we bring Your Word before You. I love what You tell us, that Your Word is a light that shines in a dark place. God, we need that. Our world is confused and so dark in so many places, but thank you for your truth. Thank you for your light. I pray that it would shine into us, that it would be just clear for us what you're saying, and it would guide in many ways, that it would be a light to our path. Lord, as I pray that, I pray that for each and every one of us, that this would be a space and a time where what you're wanting to say to us, we would hear whether it be a passage that just almost jumps off the page at us, whether you put something in my mouth that my lips are able to articulate what you're trying to say, or whether you do it entirely outside of that, just by the work of your Spirit opening up truth to us here this morning, may it be that we hear what you have for us. May it be that this morning we are able to just respond and, and hear what you're speaking God, we're asking for that. We're asking for your work and entrusting you in this moment. Would you lead us into what you have for us? Praying for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 7, it's kind of like we've stepped into a different room. Oh, what do I mean by that? Well, if you've been with us so far in our study of Daniel, it's been an exciting study. But we begin to make a transition here in chapter 7. Really, the book, the, the book of Daniel divides equally with the first six chapters and the last six chapters. The first six chapters are amazing history. Oh, there's prophecy in there a little bit, but it's big in the, in the accounts that took place. I mean, in that whole place, we get Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We get to see all of the things that take place in the midst of that, the handwriting on the wall, some amazing accounts of things that God did. And part of that moves us and draws us into that. But in chapter 7, it switches. The main focus now becomes very clear prophetic understandings of the future that God gives. It changes so we're not so much walking through history as we are seeing things that God wants us to see. As a matter of fact, it's not even arranged chronologically. Well, yeah, if you're walking along with me, the timestamp that chapter 7 finds itself in doesn't come actually after Daniel chapter 6. It actually comes after Daniel chapter 4. Why don't you just note with me there at the beginning, verse 1 says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Pause there, understand. Yeah, that's Daniel chapter 5, but in Daniel chapter 5, we're at the end of Belshazzar's reign. So between Daniel 4 and 5, chapter 7 happens. But it's not arranged chronologically. It's arranged again here because now we're moving into a different section. In fact, one of the things that defines it is not only is it prophetic, but now it becomes things that God very specifically gives Daniel. Yeah, up to this point in time, Daniel's been involved in other people's lives. We had the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. We had the handwriting on the wall that Daniel was able to speak into Belshazzar's life. Even Daniel in the lion's den was really God dealing with Darius. And so there's been this incredible account of things that God was working through Daniel into other people's lives. But now it becomes specifically for Daniel. These are no longer visions that somebody else has that Daniel's interpreting. These are now visions and dreams that God is giving very specifically to Daniel himself. In fact, you might just notice it with me again in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. 
and the visions of his, of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Yeah, this is Daniel's dream. This is Daniel's dream that he wants to bring us into, that God wants to bring you into, but there's something personal about that that is going to be definitive in the way that it comes across. Well, as we begin to gaze into it, can I tell you a little bit about where we're going? Yeah, we're going to cover half of this this morning. We're going to see in Daniel 7 things that are there. We'll come back and finish Daniel 7 next week, hopefully, and and see more that's there. But some of what God is seeking to do is to shape your perspective, your your perspective of life and the future. I've called this morning's message kind of a prophetic perspective, almost as if you were to take and hold a telescope up to your eye and you're gazing down the corridor of history, but you're wanting to see it with a biblical lens, that this book needs to become that which with which you see and, and see the things that are coming. That's in many ways what's going to be laid before us is to shape your perspective of the way that you view life and the way that you view the future. Well, that's what Daniel's going to see. It's a dream, but it's a pretty crazy dream. It's a dream that has four great beasts a part of it. Why don't you notice with me, beginning in verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. It says that four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first, it was like a lion that had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth because of it, between its teeth. And, then it, and they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." All right, while we gaze into this, let's just begin with an understanding. This is a pretty crazy dream. I mean, if like, this was your dream, you'd be like, this is a really weird dream. I mean, it's just like really weird. Like, what's happening here? Well, it's again a prophetic perspective. It begins with an understanding of where it takes place. Because he saw four beasts who are coming up out of the sea, that the four winds of heaven blow on the sea and the beasts come up out of the sea. We really have no doubt about this. Biblically, in a prophetic image, the sea is a reference to the nations, to the Gentile world, that in many ways it views it that way, almost like a tumultuous sea that's moving and rolling, and yet out of the sea comes these four really wild beasts. Now, I just want to be clear, they're hard to even try to comprehend. I like the way that Daniel says it. He says it's something like he doesn't say they are. He says, well, kind of, the best I could kind of describe it to you is that the first one is kind of like a lion, but kind of not. It kind of has wings, and, and, and just there's this whole perspective that is just a very visual perspective. Now, trying to imagine this becomes a little bit complex and even hard to get there. People try. Over the years, people have taken Daniel 7, and they've drawn images and pictures and, and different ways to kind of imagine what these beasts look like. I had thought about even putting up a number of those images on the screen. I changed my mind. I mean, honestly, if I can just say it this way, I've never seen any image that just like, oh, that just did it justice. I mean, they just did a really good job with that. It's like, no, it always feels superficial and almost just like, okay, that's their imaginations, but it's hard to picture it that way. Now, if that's helpful to you, if you need to see those images, well, hey, just go and do an internet search later. Go and do an internet search for Daniel 7 and 4 beasts, and you'll get some crazy pictures. Don't do it right now. <laughs> I'm watching. Just kidding. But I mean, don't do it right now, but do it later if you really feel like, hey, I want to see what people imagine these four beasts like. There's some crazy images, but here this morning, I just want you to challenge your imagination. I just want to challenge you to try to imagine in your own kind of understanding, just almost watching these things take place. So we get four beasts that are laid out to us. The first one, he tells us in verse four, he says, the first, it was like a lion. 
and kind of you can almost imagine it, but it had eagle's wings. So a lion with wings that are kind of there, he says, he's watched till the wings were plucked off it and lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. Pretty crazy image. The second one, he said, there's another beast. It's kind of like a bear. And if you don't imagination, see it, but it's, it's kind of a lopsided bear. It's raised up on one side. It's got three ribs sticking out of its mouth and, and between its teeth and gets the command to arise and devour much flesh. You're watching that, and then Daniel says, then there's a, a third one. After this, and there was another. It's kind of like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of, of a bird. And the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, he says, I saw in the night vision, and this one he can't even give a like to. He says, and behold, it's a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring and breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet, and it was different. From all the beasts who were before it, it had ten horns. Okay, four really crazy animals, four just kind of watching through this. Now, we actually know for certain what they are because God's going to interpret it for us. Hey, let's take a preview of some of the stuff we're going to see next week. Gaze down to verse 17, if you will, with me for a moment, and God just simply explains. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, or maybe better translated, four kingdoms, which shall arise out of the earth. He says, here are four kingdoms, four empires that are going to rise out of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. From where Daniel looks, he looks down human history and he sees four kind of world empires come on the scene. The first is Babylon, which is really where Daniel is. He's in the Babylonian empire. He sees this one that has like lions. And it's an interesting thing. That really is an emblem that was found all the way through Babylon, Babylonian literature. But it's got these wings that are plucked off of it, ends up standing on his feet like a man. A man's heart's given to it. Probably the, a picture of Daniel chapter 4 of what happens to Nebuchadnezzar, that he becomes like an animal and then comes out of that that really is definitive of the Babylonian empire. But that then moves to the empire. After Babylon, the Medo-Persian empire comes on the scene. It's this wild kind of conglomeration. In fact, it is again too. It's the Medes and the Persians ruling together, but it's a little bit lopsided. The Persian empire is stronger. So he kind of pictures it up there. It's got these three ribs in his mouth, probably a reference to the three great kind of battles and, and, and strategies where he took out Libya, Ethiopia, and Babylon, and kind of just this really destructive thing where he says devour much flesh literally happens as the Medes and the Persians come on the scene. Then we get the fourth one, which is a leopard, which really becomes a picture of Greece, where Alexander the Great comes on after the Medo-Persian Empire, leading in the Grecian Empire, and conquering the world in, in just less than two decades. I mean, radically fast, where, you know, in his 30s, he ends up dying, and, before, and he's conquered the whole known world. Kind of this picture of the speed of a leopard, these four wings, but it also has four heads, and we'll talk about this later in Daniel, because when Alexander the Great dies... He doesn't have any kind of heirs to leave it to. He leaves it to four of his generals that kind of take the Grecian Empire forward after his days. Well, that then brings us to Rome, and Rome is an entirely different thing. Rome comes on there as the most just controlling, kind of marching forward, almost these iron teeth crushing and, and controlling everything, ruling for almost 500 years. I mean, this crazy, strong empire. Daniel sees all four of these. He sees these empires that become things that are going to be there, and these are the perspectives that God is bringing. Okay, so just pause for a moment and see it. Daniel's gazing down the corridor of human history, and God is showing him what's going to happen in his future. He's showing him the kingdoms that are going to come, the world empires that are going to come on the scene. So as we're trying to figure this out, and we're kind of watching through this whole thing, there are a number of things that we need to understand. There's some incredible details in this passage, some of which we're not going to be able to dive deeply into, and some of you, you're going to be disappointed by that, because I know I'm speaking to some of you, like, man, I love this stuff, man, let's go into all the little details, and you're going to be able to go deeper, hey, you go. You, you go deeper, go have fun, joy, and all this here. Others of you are like, oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, these things always confuse me. Well, I'm hoping to be helpful because I just want to tell you, God wants to help you understand. Well, what is it you need to understand? Well, maybe first and foremost is just a solid understanding that God knows the future. Hey, hear me as clear as I can. God knows the future. He accurately describes 
what was coming in Daniel's day with such incredible accuracy, with such incredible accuracy here and in the chapters to come, that there's just no doubt that God was able to describe what was going to happen before it happened. So much so that for some Bible scholars who are really critical thinkers who try to, they don't really think that God can do this, they actually came up with a theory that there was no way that Daniel actually wrote this. Some of you might remember, we talked about this, I think, in our very first study in the book of Daniel. But there's actually no doubt. I mean, both through the literature, both through uh, the archaeological evidence we have, there's no doubt that Daniel himself wrote this, and he describes the future before it happens. And he does so accuracy, which is statistically impossible. I mean, this crazy thing, there was no way that ever anybody could have seen the future with such clarity unless that God was able to describe the, the future before it happened. Now, that's powerful. It's powerful because it helps us understand that God knows, that he knows the future, that it's not a thing in question, that it's something that he sees accurately, and when he describes it, we can trust that he knows it. Now, that's going to be helpful because it helps not only our understanding of who or what God's doing here, but also our understanding of what God's able to describe for us. Oh, yeah, we're here in Daniel 7, and part of what we're doing is describing the past. But we're also going to be talking about the future. In the middle of this passage, he goes in both directions. In fact, when we come back to it next week, we're going to talk through much that is future-oriented in this passage, moving on into the man that the Bible describes as the Antichrist. And he's telling us of things that are going to happen. And what I want you to be able to do is to see that God accurately describes the past, and we can be confident that what he's telling us is going to come is going to come. That this God who can describe the, the past for us so accurately, the future, did so for them, and he's doing so for us. Now, that's just comforting, knowing that God is not guessing. He's not prognosticating. Like, oh, I think, well, maybe this will happen. It's like, no, this is going to happen 100%. Now, that's going to be helpful for us, both in our understanding of the future, but the main thing it does is it helps us to understand who our God is. It helps us to recognize we have a God that knows we have a God that knows everything. He sees, he sees history past. He sees history present. He sees history future. It's not a guess for him. He's the God who's big and over all of these things. That there's a sense that you and I are meant to feel his knowledge, his work, and rest in him. That if you can feel what this chapter is describing for us, there's something that happens in the midst of it that helps us to see, that helps us to understand what's taking place in the midst of this. There becomes a place that this becomes true, not only from Daniel's perspective, but into our world today. Yeah, think this through with me for a moment. We live in a world, and sometimes it can feel so crazy. Sometimes it can feel like we're in a you know, runaway freight car. You know, like it's just like it's moving rapidly, like it's falling, and you never know which way it's going to go. And, and sometimes you can live in this place that you feel like, okay, it's out of control. Like it's, gonna, it's about to go off the rails. Like any time here, we're going to mess up everything. But God here speaks to us, and he tells us, I know where you are. He's able to describe the past, and then he's going to describe the future. And something that happens in the midst of this is a confidence to know, hey, he's working. <laughs> he's working in our world. And there's no doubt. I mean, he accurately described what did happen. He actually describes where we're going. It's almost as if you're reading through a history and we can say, okay, this did happen. And we flip forward to the end of the book and we say, okay, and this is going to happen. And what that does is it gives us a confidence in God who is working in the midst of our world. It gives us a confidence of God who's working in our nation and our times. And we can trust him. We can trust in the God who is the God over history and working in the midst of that. Now, guys, I want to tell you that'd be profound. I know that for some of us, that is exactly where we need, that maybe some of the main things that we need to hear this morning is a confidence in, in God and in who He is as a God who is over history and working in history. But can we dive down a little bit deeper? See, it's not just true about nations. It's not just true about times. It's true about you. I just want to tell you right now, God knows you. He could just as easily tell you everything about you and everything about your future. You're not a mystery to him. God's not looking there going, I'm just trying to figure you out. You know, I just, I just don't really understand, and I don't know where you're going. I don't know what's happening in your life. It's not where he is. He's a God who knows absolutely everything, 
And there's something about just this resting in a God who knows, who knows both who we are, where we are, where we're going, what we're going to face, that is incredibly powerful and incredibly comforting, that as we look at life, it's meant to be a place that we can look at it through this lens that says, hey, my God is this God who is God, who's over everything. And I'm just going to tell you, that would be incredible for you this morning to make sure that that's the way you view life that something that's happening in the midst of it here for Daniel is that he's getting a, a lens into this perspective where he can say, okay, when I look at the future, God knows the future. Now, as we think about that, maybe it sounds like I'm saying the same thing, but I'm not. God knows the future, and God shows that he knows. God shows that he knows. What do I mean by that? Think this through with me for a moment. Do you think that Daniel fully understood so Daniel gets these crazy visions. They got these, you know, lions and bears and leopards. And he's, do you think that Daniel's like, oh yeah, that's going to be the Medo-Persian Empire. And after that, that's going to be the Grecian Empire. That's going to be Alexander the Great. He's going to conquer the world in this amount of time. Then he's going to die and he's going to leave it to his four generals. Do you think that Daniel had that kind of accurate understanding into the future? No, no. I mean, that's not what's given to him. That's not the, what, what he gets in the midst of this. He gets a, a, an understanding of where this is going, but God doesn't fill in all the details. He doesn't lay it all the way out there. And one of the things this helps us understand is that the purpose of prophecy is to give us a perspective that's different sometimes than we think. The prophetic visions, the prophetic accuracy is really best seen in a rearview mirror. It's really seen best in, in that direction. In other words, it's not something that we can always see ahead of times. It's something that's being laid out for us in a different way. God describes things amazingly accurately. He lays out for Daniel exactly where history is going. And, and he does so in a way that we can be confident that God knows where it's going, that he understands what's happening in the midst of that, that he's able to foretell it. But it's not so in so much detail that Daniel could have you know, known exactly when, who, or how long all of that would take place. He just had that confidence in what God was going to do. Now, you might get where I'm going with this, but I think this is really important to catch. Because if we can see how prophecy was given and, and what it would have done for them, it should help us in how we take prophecies that are future prophecies and understand them in the same way that we should apply to our understanding of what's yet to come. In other words, we're going to see some things, both a little bit this week, more next week, when we begin to talk about the future, talk about this man who is the Antichrist, who's going to come on the scene, talk about 10 leaders who are going to be a part of him coming on the scene. We're going to see things that are coming in human history. Or add to that, we could talk about things like the mark of the beast that Revelation talks about, things that the Bible tells us is going to happen. Now, I just want you to know, God tells us it's going to happen. But here's what I need you to understand. He doesn't give us the details. Why is that important? Well, sometimes, again, just graciously, kindly, some of you have been around, you've been in churches for a while. Sometimes people with their prophetic kind of understandings, they come up with very specific ways. Like, this is this. I mean, the ten horns, they are these leaders, and it's, it's this thing. Or they'll even talk about the mark of the beast, and they'll say, oh, well, the mark of the beast is going to be a computer chip that's planted in people's hands. You know what? It really might be. I mean, it really might be, but it doesn't have to be. It could be something entirely different. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, it could be something that we've not even thought of. We'll just look back and go, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly, God said it was going to happen, and we know it's going to happen, but the details, he doesn't really kind of lay out for us. And so at times, people try to figure out those details. They almost find themselves thinking, is that what God is giving us this for so that we could figure it out before it happens? And I'm just trying to tell you, no. The point is never so that you and I have a perfect understanding about how everything that is happening and when it's going to happen. The purpose is for us to be able to trust in God. The purpose for us is to be able to rely on who He is. Think about it this way. One of my favorite verses, and many of you guys know it well there in Proverbs 3, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. What an amazing verse. What an amazing verse, and yet it echoes a reality that's found all the way across Scripture, a place that God is constantly calling you and I into relationship with Him, where He'd say, trust me. Trust me with everything you are. 
calling you to have faith, to believe, to be confident. God says, trust me. And then he adds to it, and don't lean on your own understanding. (laughs) Don't lean on your ability to figure everything out because that's not what he's giving you. He's not giving you every detail so that you can answer every question or understand all those things. He says, trust me. Acknowledge me. Acknowledge me as your God. And God says, I'll direct you. I'll lead your life in the path I have for you. That is always God's plan for our lives. It's the relationship He wants to have with you. And prophecy comes into a place that strengthens that trust. Not to the kind of place that we like, well, I know how it's all going to happen, man. I got it all mapped out. I, I mean, I know who and when and how and how long. No, you do not. He did not give that to us. He gave us enough to know what He's going to do, and He's going to do it. But the point of it isn't so that we understand everything. The point of it is that we can see God working in the midst of history and a confidence that He is going to do it. We get to see some of the big movements that will be helpful in the midst of that, but in the end of it, what it should do in your life is make you trust Him more. If your understanding of prophecy makes you prideful, arrogant, and makes you feel like you're a know-it-all, then you probably don't understand it. If it draws you to this place of you seeing how great our God is and, and, and how powerful He is and what He's doing, and you walk out of it going, I trust Him, then you probably got the understanding because that's where we're going. That's what's happening for Daniel is he's getting these visions that should and would just accomplish this in his life to help him be confident in what he sees and where it's going. Okay, that's important. So the main thing, again, is to understand that God knows. I mean, God is giving us these things. His ability to tell us the future before it happens ultimately defines who He is. Well, with that, we need to just talk about a couple things. One of the technical things we need to talk about for a moment, I want to just take you a little bit technical. Now, some of you are like, man, I thought we already were. No, we're not. There's a lot more we could go into. But one of the technicalities that we need to understand, both in understanding what Daniel 7 is about but also as understanding prophecy is that God has different times and seasons. Paul, when he was writing to the Thessalonians, when he was talking to them about what God was going to do in the future and prophecy, he says, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. It was an incredible compliment to him. He's like, you understand times and seasons. You understand what God is doing. And that was a, a good compliment. And to God, it would be a compliment that could be for us as well. But to that, we need to talk about for a moment, because here's the challenge. We're looking at a prophetic vision of the future, and specifically, we're going to talk about this fourth beast, this fourth beast that is revealed to Daniel, but one of the complexities is it is both the past and it's the future, that we're going to look, we look back and to see what Rome was and how they came on and, and, and controlled the world. But then we're going to see what it's going to be in the future, that the fourth beast also becomes prophetic of the future, ultimately being the Antichrist and everything that's there. And the kind of thing is like trying to figure out how does that work? Like, where are we in this prophecy? I mean, if we're in the past and the future, how do we define, you know, where 2021 is? I mean, how does that fit? Where is it in this? Let's look at it. Go there with me as you're opening up the scriptures there. Daniel 7, verse 7, we see the past. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts who were before it, and it had ten horns. So he sees it, he sees this beast that is this incredible picture, accurate picture of what Rome was coming on the scene. But we jump into verse 8, and now we're in the future. He says, I was considering these horns, these ten horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by its roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking pompous or arrogant or blasphemous words against God. Wow. Hey, I'm going to tell you right now, that little horn is the one we're going to talk about next week. This is the man that the Bible calls the Antichrist and the one that we need to understand. But if you're tracking with me, that's future. There's never been anything historically that fits verse 8. It has not happened yet. But therein lies the complexity. How did we get there? How did we get from 
Rome past to maybe this Rome future? I mean, how does that whole thing happen? And one of the key understandings for you this morning, I believe, is understanding times and seasons. We are living in what we might call the church age or what the Bible would say is the times of the Gentiles. That right now we're in a season of human history that God would describe as his work that's taking place in this time of Gentile kingdoms. But what's important for you to understand is that this church age was not foreseen in the Old Testament. You're not going to get to a Bible passage that describes what has happened for almost the last 2,000 years. We're in a season of history that Paul would talk about it in the New Testament, that it was a hidden thing. It was a mysterious thing. It was always God's plan, but it wasn't revealed to Old Testament prophets. We're in something that is, again, mysterious. So when he's looking at it, when Daniel's looking at history, he's looking at history through the times of Israel, through the times of the Jews. And his perspective is that. His perspective is to see it that way, and for us it becomes helpful to try to understand how that works. Lots of understandings in this, lots of Bible students that might differ in it, but again, I'm just presenting to you how I see it. And so think about it this way. L- let me just kind of do a, like a goofy little drawing for you. It's not a great thing. Please understand that if you're expecting something great, it's not. Um, we're going to have to talk about this a number of times as we work through the book of Daniel, so if I don't explain this clearly and you have a better idea, I'm open. I'm like, you tell me, hey, maybe you could explain it this way. I'd totally go for that, but let me try to explain it in a very simple way. So we think about this thing that is this fourth beast, which is Rome, which is the time of the Jews, and it's almost as if we're looking at this timeline that is being described here in the book of Daniel, but something happens. Jesus comes, he dies on the cross. He reveals himself, first of all, to the nation, to the Jews, and they reject him. They reject him. And so what happens is that God says, okay, because you've rejected, I'm going to turn and I'm going to do a work in the Gentiles. We enter into this time that is a church age, that is this time of the Gentiles that becomes this space that separates these two, that for the last 2,000 years we're really in. Lots of Bible passages give this. Maybe the best one for me to give you is out of the book of Romans, where it simply says it to us this way. Paul says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. By the way, that's a good term, mystery. It has the idea of something that was unseen, never revealed before, something that was hidden. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He says something happened. Israel was blinded. They, they didn't see Jesus. They didn't see the whole thing. And one of the things that God was doing is because now we've entered into this time where Gentiles, this Gentile church is taking place, where we're in this space where God is doing this amazing thing where he's taking the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. But there's a time that that's going to end. He says Israel has been blinded until... It says, until that fullness happens. When this full expression of what God is doing in the Gentile world, in, in the church happens, then God is going to again go back and do a work in Israel. He's going to again step back into the scene, kind of renewing prophecy where he left off. That's really going to happen, and I believe, at the rapture of the church. I believe we're heading to a space that God is doing a work in the, in, in the, in the world, he's doing a work in the church, and then he's going to take us to him. That Thessalonians talks about us being you know, taken up and meeting Jesus in the air. When that happens, that's the fullness of the Gentiles, and God again begins to work in Israel. Again, it's hard to kind of grasp, but what you need to understand is that we were moving down this timeline of history, we were moving down this prophetic perspective, and it's as if it just paused, as if it's stuck on some freeze frame that God is doing a work in Israel, and then the, the church comes in, and when he's done with the church, it unpauses. It unpauses and we're back. We're, we're back to what God is doing and the completion of this work that is what God is describing here in Daniel 7 resumes. But Daniel doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. And, and again, I just need you to kind of understand. There's no way he could because God didn't reveal it, but it's here. And for you and I, the important part is to understand, hey, that's how we get there. That's how we, we're, we're following along. So we're moving from the past to the future because this age isn't, wasn't revealed, but we get to see what's coming. We get to see what's coming, and that makes it really important for us to understand how that whole thing plays out. Now, again, 
I don't know if that made sense. We'll have to talk about it again. So if it's complex, just hope you can spend some time on it. But just again, understand, Daniel didn't see you. He didn't see the church. God didn't show him. He was showing what God was going to do with Israel. And that's helpful for us because it still becomes history past and history future. Well, that's helpful. I mean, again, one sense, just to set the the realm of our perspective so we know what we're looking at, how we're looking down this this scope of history. Let's add another quick thing. Uh, One of the things that may be helpful to see, maybe I should have already mentioned it, is that part of this perspective of Daniel 7, it really helps us see how God sees history. Sing it differently. So if you've been with us in Daniel, we already saw this. Yeah, this whole understanding of what God was doing in the future with the next four empires is exactly what God communicated in Daniel chapter 2 to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar saw this, this great image, this multi-metallic image, and God you know, laid out just the future, the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, the Grecian, the Roman, and even into the end times you know, Roman work. So we we see all of these things. We have already talked about this. This has already been revealed in the book of Daniel. So one of the questions we have to ask is why? Why Daniel chapter 7? Why do we have to come back and now see the same thing in a different way? Well, certainly there's going to be some details given here in Daniel 7 that weren't seen in Daniel chapter 2. That's true. And so there's going to be some things that are new and helping us understand. But there's something else that is also happening. I think it helps us see things from a very different perspective. That we get to see history not just from the way this is, but the way it works. In other words, when God describes history to Daniel, he's going to see it as these nations that are like wild animals. But when God described the history to Nebuchadnezzar, speaking in the language that the world would understand, he sees it as this metallic image, this, this, this you know, kind of monument that's being built. And it's a fascinating understanding to realize, hey, yeah, these are two very different ways to see the world. For many in our world, they see the world like Nebuchadnezzar did. It's not a bad thing. We can communicate in that language Daniel did. That some people see the world as human achievement, as if we're building some incredible monument, some statue of, of, of man's greatness that is, you know, just you know, powerful and beautiful, and some see the history of, of mankind that way. It's not bad. It's this is the way they see it. But when God speaks it to Daniel, when he kind of shows him how he sees it and how Daniel, as a follower of God, should see it, he sees it not as this metallic image of man's achievement. He sees it like wild animals. I mean, kind of like mutant animals. I mean, I don't know if you can think about it any other way. It's kind of crazy. And there's something altogether profound in that. Now, you probably understand it, but just track it down with me. If you say someone's acting like an animal, I mean, some of you guys, you have kids, right? And you have that place, and do you ever like, you guys are a bunch of animals. That's not a compliment, right? I mean, when you say that, you're not like, boy, you guys are so organized and beautiful. And you, it's like, you guys are crazy. You're not even thinking clearly. You're like, you know, and it's like, that's just craziness. And it's like, that's how God sees history. He's like, you know how I see the nations of the world? They're these crazy animals, kind of t- tumultuous and wicked. And I find that helpful. I find it helpful that they say that as God looks at history, he sees it that way, and I think it's even true today, that his perspective becomes one that is this animal-like existence, and so Daniel 7 brings that fresh perspective into human history. Well, those are important. Those are, those are key things that we're going to see, and yet he wants to bring a couple more things that we need to see this morning. So we're gazing at history. We're looking down the scope of human history. We see these beasts that rec- re- just represent nations. We see that God knows. We see a little bit about how we're seeing that with times and seasons and even animals. But what do we need to see in this? Where do we go? Well, that's exactly what he goes to next. Join with me there, Daniel chapter 7. Pick it up with me there in verse 9. After he sees these, the, this image, he sees all that's there, he says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. 
Yet, as Daniel's gazing down this perspective of human history, he now takes us to a place that we get this preview of what's to come. And it's a preview of God's judgment. We see this one who is there, and he describes it there in verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. This is God the Father, because we're going to see God the Son in a moment. But all by itself, it is this amazing term. I love this term. I don't know if it's going to mean to you what it does to me. I mean, just this description of God is He's the one who has always been. He's the ancient one. He's the one that had, who was and is and is to come. I mean, he's the one who is over all time. He calls us to see who he is. He says, okay, I'm watching, and I see this one who is the ancient of days. And he describes him for us in a number of ways. We get this vision of God that we see images like this throughout the Bible. Revelation 1 even has a little bit of this kind of terminology, and all of them help us get this just perspective into the nature of God and specifically what's happening. We see his holiness. He tells us there in verse 9, it says, his garment was white as snow, and his, the hair of his head was like pure wool. I mean, you're looking at this one, and it's, and it's just this understanding that God is perfect, that He's a holy God, that He's a God who's, who's handling everything right. I mean, he's, he's perfect in His ways, and, and He sees that. But He also sees His justice. I mean, he just, you get this whole place, it says His, his throne, in verse 9, was like a fiery flame, its wheels of burning fire, and a fiery stream issued. I mean, you almost got to feel this. You almost just got to imagine this as God is sitting there and, and his throne is on fire and his wheels are burning and there's this fire that's moving out from this throne. It's a picture of judgment and justice. And as he's doing this, we see that all of mankind is before him. He says a thousand thousands ministered to him. Maybe that's a picture of the angelic realm. Maybe it's a picture of God's people serving him. But then it says 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. I mean, this massive number of people, just kind of the idea is just more than you could count, is just spread out there before him. And we begin to see what's happening. It's here that they're going to be judged. It tells us that the court was seated and the books were opened. That there is this picture of God's justice. There is a picture of God's judgment. And for you who know your Bible, this is the great white throne judgment that's revealed to us in Revelation chapter 20. This is where history is moving to where God is going to judge the world. Hey, I'll tell you what. Let me just put those pa passages from Revelation 20 on the screen. It says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there is no place for them. He says, I saw the dead small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. So all of mankind, the dead are laid out there. They're all standing before the, the God of the universe. And it's as if every book that recorded everything that has ever happened is laid out there. But there's also a second book, which is the Lamb's book of life of all those who know Jesus. And it says that, that this, this, the dead are judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books, that the world is going to be judged that day and everything that they are is going to be laid out before them. Jesus says this judgment is so precise that every idle word is brought into account on that day. In other words, everything has been recorded. Everything's being laid out goes on to say, death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, which is hell. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Anyone not found in Jesus's book that they're saved by him is cast into the lake of fire. But again, kind of catch the understanding. Nobody's sent to hell because of rejecting Jesus. They're sent to hell because they're sinners. And they're going to be, it's going to be convincing on that day. The books are going to be opened. They're going to, their, their lives are going to be laid out to them. The justice is going to be there. And everybody who doesn't know Jesus are going to hell. But everybody that knows Jesus, because their names are written in the book of life, in that sense are delivered from that. But it is a just and justifying moment. So we're watching all this whole thing, and so what we're needing to understand, what Daniel's getting is he kind of grabs this kind of biblical telescope and is looking down this, the, the realm of hum, human history, is this solid understanding, this place that we see history is moving towards this place of God judging the world. Do you see it that way? 
Do you understand that's where we are, that that's where we're going? I mean, if you could understand this right now, it is terrifying and comforting. It is terrifying. Every person is going to stand before God and give an account of their life. Yes, Christian, even you. Now, please don't be terrified in the sense of you being you know, judged for your sins. Those were all laid on Jesus. And the Bible tells us because of that, there's now no condemnation. Nevertheless, we're going to stand. Specifically before what Paul says is the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our life. That's going to be one of those moments that for Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord. I mean, it's like, okay, I know this. Life, we're going to stand before God. Every person is going to stand before God in the last times. And it's terrifying. It ought to be. It ought to be this place of an understanding that, that that's happening, but it's also incredibly comforting. Comforting why? Because here's the thing. God is going to deal with everything. God is going to deal with everything. Are you frustrated? Are you frustrated that things are happening in our world that don't seem to get justice? Do you watch things and wonder, it's like, this isn't fair, this isn't right. That's the way the world is. But God's going to deal with everything, whether it be Nazi Germany and all that happened there, nobody got away with anything. Things that are happening now, no, we, are, we are rapidly on this track that if you could see biblical history from a, a biblical lens, you see what's happening and you see where it's going. We're on this place that we're moving into a place that mankind is going to stand. If you could see nations and you could see the world, then you know this, God's justice is coming. God's holiness is going to be enacted. He's going to bring the whole world before him, and that's going to be the day that he deals with everything. It's a terrifying moment, but it's a comforting moment. It's the perspective that you and I are meant to have when we think about a biblical perspective of human history. But that's not the end of the story. It doesn't end with God's justice. Oh, keep reading with me. So you just read it. We read through this whole place. The books were opened. It told us in verse 10. He goes on to talk a little bit more about the Antichrist in verse 11 and 12, and we'll come back and talk about that next week. Let's just skip to verse 13. Since I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom. Then all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. Yeah, if you could see human history, you see where we're heading. We're heading to God's justice, but beyond that, we're heading to the kingdom of God. We're heading into the things that God is going to do, and this incredible thing happens. He looks, he says, he keeps watching, and he says, there's one like the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Oh, you know, right? I mean, it's the Sunday school answer. If you never know the answer, it's always Jesus, right? The Sunday school answer, if you don't, if you don't know the answer, it's, it's Jesus, right? Yeah, it is Jesus. I mean, this is the one. He gets this picture of seeing. He looks to this one and he sees the Son of Man. That term is an amazing term. It is Jesus' favorite description given to us in the Gospels. When he refers to himself in, in the New Testament, he does so almost 70 times, 70 plus times actually, throughout the New Testament, and he calls himself the Son of Man. It is referring to passages like the one that you and I are reading. It describes this incredible thing of God becoming a man. It describes deity coming just God with us, him doing this incredible work. In fact, it really kind of comes to its culmination as Jesus is condemned to the cross. As the Jews are looking for something that's, that's wrong, as some way to condemn him, Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7. Hey, let me put it on the screen for you. There in Matthew 26, they are trying to you know, find something wrong with Jesus, trying to find some way to send him to the cross. And so they finally just put him under oath. And they say, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us, I mean, are you really the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Yes, I am. <laughs> I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. But then he continues quoting. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven which is exactly what we read right here, there in verse 13, that you know, behold the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
In other words, Jesus says, yeah, exactly this is who I am. I'm the one who's coming. And it's just a beautiful, quick understanding. He is both. He is fully God and fully man. He's the Son of God, and He's the Son of Man. It's this incredible work of recognizing who He is and Jesus saying, hey, this is who I am. Now, one of the things that makes this so powerful, God, help me to say this clearly, is if you can see human history, and you can see where we're going, and you can see the kingdom of God, it is fully connected to this understanding that Jesus is going to reign. I mean, this dominion that's going to be given to him, that every knee is going to bow before him, but that is solidly connected to him coming and dying on the cross. Oh yeah, go back and see it again. Watch it there. We're seeing it in verse 13. You know, as he tells us, you know, he comes before the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. Verse 14, then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. He's the king of kings. He's the one who's going to reign over everything. His dominion is a real dominion, but that comes to him because he's the son of man. Paul would give it to us this way in Philippians, talking about Jesus humbling himself to become a man to die on the cross. He says, in being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus becomes the Son of Man. He becomes one who is fully God and fully man. He steps into that place, and from that it says, therefore, because of what Jesus did, coming and becoming man and dying on the cross, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. I mean, he's given him the highest name that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in other words, what happens right here where it says he was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom and all nations, peoples, they bow the knee before him. It's not saying everybody gets saved, saying everybody recognizes, but also all of us who are saved. It is a solid recognition that it is Jesus, that we recognize that what's coming is because of what he did, that is because of God who so loved the world, sent his son to die on the cross, that we look to a kingdom that is past this history that is a glorious kingdom. In fact, it's an everlasting kingdom. You saw it again there in verse 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one, which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees human history, and it's a succession of world empires, of constant change, of turmoil and, and messes. And they're all going away, but there's a kingdom that will not pass away. There's a kingdom that's coming that is a solid forever kingdom. There's a kingdom that is, is real. The simple, profound point is if you can see history, then you know it really is all about Jesus. That if we can see what's happening, if we can see where we're going, the simple point is that we would discover that it really is that, that history is his story. It is that which is taking us to the coming of Christ, to, to Him being a kingdom. And the invitation for us is both to see where history is going, but to make sure that we're a part of that kingdom, that we're a part of, of that kingdom. Now, I think about how profound this is, and I love this whole understanding of, of how the world should be looked at and how nations should be looked at. Maybe my favorite commentary on this understanding is given to us in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 describes just this whole attitude that God is kind of encouraging in the midst of this. And I'm just going to put the whole psalm up on the screen with you if you just kind of think it through with me. God just begins by asking the question, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? It's as if he looks at the world and says, why are people so dumb? Okay, that's my, that's my uh, just kind of gemism on it. Why do they do such pointless endeavors? Why is the whole world resisting everything that's right and true? Why are they plotting a vain thing? He says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces. Let us cast their cords away from us. He says, when you look at the world, they are fighting against God. They are trying to throw off God's reign over their lives, over his yoke, over everything that's there. They're resisting God. They're resisting Jesus. They're, they're doing, just kind of pushing against everything that's there. Please understand, that's not new. 
but it is solidly today. If you're watching our world today, you would say, man, the nations seem like they are just rejecting and fighting God. Like they're pressing against Jesus, they're pressing against all that God says, and God says, here's what they're doing. The whole nations of the world seem to be in this place of fighting God, working against Him. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. I really like this. So God looks at the world, and He sees their rejection of Him and His rejection of Jesus, and He laughs. It's not a laugh of mockery. It's not an insult. It's just almost comical if you could see it. Like, that's really going to work for you. You're going to rebel against the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God who made everything, who's pulling everything together. That's a waste of an effort. That's not going to go well for you. And God says, actually, it's going to go horrible because I'm going to speak to you in my deep displeasure. And so he announces to the world what they needed to understand, what is the, the central part of history. He says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. This is a reference to Jesus becoming the son of man. This is Jesus coming to die on the cross for us. This is Jesus changing history. The center part that brings all life into it. He says, here's what I've done. I sent my son. I sent my son into the world to to, to redeem, to save, to become the Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He says, here's what I've done. And he says, out of that, he speaks to Jesus, says, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. He says, ask me, I'm going to give you everything which is exactly what Daniel 7 pictures for us. It pictures for us that day after the judgment of God when Jesus, in that sense, takes control of everything, that everything kind of bows under his reign, his authority, his rule, where he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and everything that is everything is under his dominion. That's the day that we're looking forward to. It's the day that we're expecting. So God gives advice. Now, right now, Therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. He says, if you see what's coming, you see where we are, serve him. (laughs) Serve him. Rejoice in him. Find him to be your life. Find him to be your soul. And he ends it this way, saying, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Man, so well said. So just the essence of everything. You know what you need to do? Have a relationship with Jesus. You need to kiss the Son. You You need to know the one that God sent into the world to save. If you see history, if you understand history, then you need to know Jesus because he's the one that's inheriting it all. And you need to trust him. Blessed are all those who trust in him. Guys, I'm telling you, this is what history is. This is where our world is. This is where it's going. What does that mean for you? Well, it might mean if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, that this needs to take place in your life. I mean, it's kind of a crazy prophetic message. And part of me just thinks, wow, that'd be really wild if you're watching online or you're here in this room and you don't know Jesus and he uses this message to awaken your soul. Kind of seems crazy to me, but it could happen. And I'm telling you, if that's you, if you're out of step with human history, if you're out of step with where we're going, you're out of step with what God is doing, then you need Jesus. You need a relationship with Jesus. You need him to be your savior. You need him to be the one that you rely on. And I'm inviting you to that relationship today. But for many of you, you are his. But the weird thing is that sometimes the worldview of the world around us captures us more than this biblical worldview. The way that we see history at times becomes less about the understanding of what God has for us and more about whatever's being kind of propagated on on, on the nightly news. And I'm telling you, he says, you know what? Oh, how blessed are those who trust in him. If you find God to be your everything, Jesus to be your everything, what an incredible hope this is, that if you can see what's coming, if you can see that, yes, human history is heading down this corridor where there's going to be the succession of human empires, there's going to be this final one that's going to come up, that's going to have the Antichrist as a part of it, and it's going to end with God judging the world. 
and then pass that to kingdom of God. If you can see that, then you see history the way you're supposed to see it. You, you gaze down this, this perspective where you're seeing it the way he wants, and I'm telling you, I'm telling you that's what God is giving Daniel, and I'm telling you that that's what he has for you. That's what he has for you. So let's close with that. Uh, you can just take your Bibles, notebooks, whatever it is you have open, and let's close those, but also just take a moment right now and ask you, so what does this mean? I mean, what are you going to do with what we've talked about this morning? It might be that, again, you're out of step with human history. You're out of step with what God is doing. You don't know Him. Then this is a good day for you to kiss the sun, to surrender to Jesus, to know Him, to come into relationship with Him, and I invite you to that. I'm going to give you a moment to pray. That's a good moment to ask Him to be your Savior. But for those of you who know him, I don't know where this has met you. Maybe as we've kind of tried to hold up this biblical telescope that gives us a perspective of human history, maybe I've said things this morning that is exactly how you view the world, and I've only strengthened what you already know. Well, good, may it strengthen you. But maybe you've lost sight of it. Maybe as we're gazing down this biblical lens of the future, you recognize I'm not, I, I've lost sight of what God tells us, how he sees this, where we're going, and he just wants to kind of you know, reorient you this morning. So in that, if there's one of these things that just needs to be okay, I needed that, I invite you to that. And maybe it is, again, just this rest, this trust in God, this recognition that he's over the future, he's, he knows the future, he knows what he's doing, and this confidence that you can have in him. So I just want to give you a quiet moment between you and the Lord just to talk to Him. Just a moment where whatever it is that God has spoken to you this morning, you would take a moment to begin a conversation with Him that we hope lasts much more than the moments we give you right now. But does start now. Where you just ask Him, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? What did this mean for me? Quietly, would you talk to God about that? I'll do the same. And we'll come back together and close in prayer and worship in a moment. God, I thank you for who you are, the God of all time, the God of all history. I thank you for what we've seen this morning, and in one sense, a reminder that there's not anything you don't understand. There's not anything happening right now that you don't fully see. And the end is not in question. The outcome is not in doubt. Lord, what you have said to us, you're going to do. It is so good to know that you know and to trust that you know. Yet, God, as we gaze down that quarter of human history, I recognize that in one sense we're heading to those days where you as the ancient of days is going to judge all mankind. God, with fear and trembling, we, we recognize and ask for your mercy and grace. I think about it, those of us who know you, recognizing the joy that, Jesus, you have taken all of our sin and, and moved it away from us. Thank you. And yet, Lord, to look at our world and recognize the judgment that's coming, we, we just do. And, and we, we pray for even now an awakening that would draw people to be aware and living in light of what is certainly coming. But Lord, I'm glad that's not the end of the story. I'm glad it doesn't end with you just dealing with all that's wrong and somehow just a, a, a dead end to everything, but we look past that to the kingdom. 
We look past that to that day, Jesus, you as King of kings and Lord of lords, bringing us into a kingdom where there is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering, to a place where everything finds itself in the life that you bring for us and how much I love that, how much I look forward to your kingdom. And Jesus, I want to be one who who embraces you and trusts in you. I pray for that for me and for each of us now, that our view of our world, of our future, of our history, is given to us through this biblical lens. Thank you for this. Help us to know it and see it better. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives, and I ask for your good work in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, we hope that God has opened up something to you and drawn things to you. If you need to talk to somebody after this, we'd love to be a part of that. Come up, ask us questions, let us pray for you. If you don't know Jesus, again, it's a great space to, to step into that and long that God would just meet us in everything that, that that is and all that he has for us. Well, again, right now we want to just close in worship, so why don't you stand with us as we kind of enter this moment where we just want to acknowledge him and, and who he is and what he is and what he has for us. As we head to that, I just want to bless you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.